Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. It's way more efficient. So for any students who are listening, and if you already are getting A's and you feel like you're doing fine, think about how you can actually get that A in half the time and use the rest of your time for other much more fun things. That was today's guest, Dr. Veronica Yan, who beautifully explains how studying smarter is not only about improving your grade, it can also be about, if your grades are already good, helping you get those results with less study time. That's really at the heart of what we've been trying to do in learning science season here on the Exam Study Expert podcast. Because over the last few weeks, we've been talking all about finding smarter ways to learn your stuff so you can get the best results possible in the least amount of study time. Today's guest brings us towards the end of the season, and it's a really exciting conversation because we've got Dr. Veronica Yan here with us today, whose expertise really could not be a more perfect fit for the Exam Study Expert podcast and my own philosophies on studying smart. Veronica began her career looking at one of the most effective learning strategies that, in my experience, most students have simply never heard of, and that's interleaving. What is interleaving? How can it help you get better results? Stay tuned and all will be revealed. But that's not all, because Dr. Yan also realised relatively early in her career that there were substantial barriers to students in adopting effective learning techniques. And that's not just about adopting interleaving, but also about all the other techniques we've been talking about on Learning Science Season over the past few weeks, including retrieval practice, spaced learning and more. So she's also got some really interesting insights on how we can actually get ourselves to adopt effective, better ways of working. In other words, to take theory and actually apply it for ourselves in real life. Subject that's really, really dear to my heart. Because ultimately, while I love that you're listening to the podcast and taking in all this great info, what I really want for you is that you take the strategies we talk about and use them to make your own study habits better for those bigger results in less time and with less stress. And so, without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Veronica Yan to the show. And uh, let's start by finding out more about interleaving before going on to find out how we can put all these effective learning strategies into action. Veronica, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself for us, please? So, I am an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin in the Department of Educational Psychology. By training, though, I was trained as a cognitive psychologist in which I study the underlying mechanisms that lead to better long-term learning and what are the ways we can leverage what we know about underlying mechanisms of memory to improving the ways in which teachers teach and the ways in which students study. As I was engaging in this kind of research, what I started to recognize is that there's another barrier to effective self-regulated learning. And that's the fact that, in fact, really effective long-term learning requires learning in ways that are quite difficult, learning in ways that may lead you to make more mistakes, learning in ways that might make it feel like learning is happening more slowly. So then what I became really interested in is in, well, how do we get over that mental barrier? So I sought additional training in a social psychology lab where we focused on 
beliefs about difficulty and how these beliefs might influence how we interpret that experience of difficulty in the process of learning. And what I really want to do is shift people from this belief that difficulty is a signal of impossibility and towards an understanding that difficulty is in fact integral to the very process of learning. And so that's what I'm doing now in educational psychology, really trying to combine the cognitive and the social fields and what we know from each of those different sides of research in bringing it to bear upon how do we improve educational practices. On the more personal side, my own educational journey has taken me across a few different continents. So I did most of my schooling, um, uh, primary and secondary schooling in Hong Kong. But in Hong Kong, um, back before 1997, I moved to Hong Kong prior to that. Hong Kong was actually a British colony. And so um, rather than attending a local Hong Kong school, because I didn't speak the local language at the time, actually, I still don't, because I don't speak Cantonese, I ended up attending a British school the whole way through, um, right up until, you know, 13th grade. And then I um, hopped over to the UK to study for undergrad before then popping over to America where I've now landed myself for graduate school, postdoc, and now as a professor. What a wonderful story. I'd be fascinated to, to dive into, you know, a, a few of those things that you, you touched on just now. One of the things I was I was keen to to start with, if it's all right, is diving into a specific topic I know you've done a bit of research on in years gone by, and that's interleaving. What do we mean by interleaving? Interleaving is one of these really interesting, very count, actually quite counterintuitive ways of studying. So let's say you need to study let's say you're studying for your biology exam and you have several different concepts that gets covered as part of this exam, just as any exam has multiple different things. The way in which we oftentimes study is we think to ourselves, well, let's go chronologically. Let's go one thing at a time. Um, the way we teach is also one thing at a time. And oftentimes we say, well, you know, I'm really going to focus on this concept and make sure I get it first before I move on to the next. And that's what we mean by blocking, blocking your study by concept. Interleaving, on the other hand, is this idea that actually, if you mix up the study, go back and forth between these related topics, that can actually lead to better learning. And it feels very counterintuitive because it feels less organized. It feels more difficult. You don't feel like you're on the roll, on a roll with your learning quite as much. You keep finding yourself having to, you know, step back, remind yourself of what happened before. It takes a little bit more effort to re-engage yourself with the, with the concept again after you come back to it, um, having turned your, turned your attention to some, something else. But interleaving, because it actually forces you to take that step back, to reload, remind yourself, because it then allows you to also juxtapose could possibly confusable concepts so that you can see the critical differences between them and understand broader connections and how they actually relate to the bigger picture. That leads to better long-term learning. Got it. Got it. So just to kind of give maybe a, maybe a sort of practical example of how that might work in practice, say I'm a student at middle school or high school and I'm, I'm learning some basic calculus. So I've just learned about differentiation and integration in my math or maths classes <laughs> in, in recent weeks. What would interleaving suggest about the best way to practice those two different types of problems? Interleaving would suggest that you should take these differentiation and integration questions and mix them all up. And this might take just a little extra work because chances are what you have in the back of the chapters of your book is just all the, the differentiation questions together and all the integration questions together. Just throw them in a big pot and mix them up. 
Nice, nice. And you were mentioning this may feel harder at first, but it, it can lead to much sort of faster and you know more durable learning. What do we know about the, the kind of mechanisms of, of how that works? What What is it about interleaving and mixing up those two different kinds of problems? What's going on in the brain, I suppose, that, that helps us uh, learn more effectively, even though it's feeling more confusing perhaps at first? An excellent question. Right. Because it's not just, oh, because it's confusing, therefore it's better. We never yeah. say that, oh no, just make you know things challenging or difficult for the sake of making things challenging or difficult. So it's really important to focus on what processes are going on. And with interleaving, um, the research really points to two broad types of processes. One that is based upon what you're paying attention to so that we have these attention-based theories as well as then um, next memory-based theories. So let me take each one at a time, starting with the attention-based theories because attention is encoding. That's what happens at the very first stage of learning. What are you even paying attention to? Now, when we have lots of different complex concepts, oftentimes the very first challenge for a student is to even be able to know what to pay attention to. When we're learning various concepts, there are um, more surfacey features that may be irrelevant to actually a deeper understanding of the concept and then more structural, deeper ways of understanding what we are trying to learn based on the examples that we're studying from. And so what interleaving does is because you're intermixing the study or the practice of related or confusable concepts, going back and forth really helps you identify what are the critical features What are the critical features that not only tie one concept together, but differentiate one concept from the other concepts? Because if you think about it in the real world, what you're going to need on the final exam is that the first thing you have to do is even recognize what the question is asking. What have I learned is applicable? And so that first piece is discrimination. Discrimination, classification, what interleaving does is it draws your attention to those pieces to the critical features. So you become quite good at, in that sort of differentiation integration example, you become quite good at recognizing, oh yeah, this is an integration question. This is the technique I'm going to need for this particular kind of problem. Absolutely. So we know, for example, that exams tend to be interleaved. It's kind of all of this concept from whatever unit mixed up together. Yeah. But the other thing is we know that life comes at you interleaved. Let's say you're going to become an engineer and you know that for these projects that you do, you have to draw on all of the different maths concepts that you've learned. Well, with a project, you don't know exactly what order those math problems are going to come at you. They just come at you in the order that's necessary. Yeah. So if you practice in an interleaved way, you're not only going to get better at recognizing one, you're going to essentially get that practice. When do I need to use what problem and why? And you also mentioned there were some memory-based aspects to interleaving as well. Yeah. So the second part is less concerned with the fact that we're juxtaposing similar or confusable concepts and more about the very fact that we're having to constantly go back to the same concept after turning our attention away from it. And so what we know from spacing is that when you have to go back and remind yourself and retrieve from memory something that you had learned or done previously, that's going to be really good for strengthening that learning. So we know that retrieval, the very act of retrieving from memory is a memory modifier. It strengthens what you retrieve. And interleaving gives you a lot of opportunities for doing that. So let's say you're going back and forth between the differentiation and integration problems. What you'll also find yourself doing is not only are you recognizing the difference between those two types of problems, but you're also having to constantly reload into your memory. How do I do differentiation? How do I do integration? What is the process? What's the procedure? 
And so by constantly having to reload it into your mind, you're also strengthening just your knowledge of how to do that formula or how to approach that type of question. Absolutely. I was, I was actually uh, in a school a week or two ago and, and we were talking about interleaving and I'd, I'd just done a bit of a presentation and we we're doing some, doing some Q&A. And, and one of the questions coming back from the teachers was, you know, they, they were quite interested in this idea of interleaving and it wasn't new to them. But one thing that was perhaps proving a little bit confusing was how far to stretch the idea of interleaving. So, you know, we've been talking about this concrete example of math problems, differentiation, integration. You can see that might apply to lots of different kinds of math problems or problems in physics or chemistry. Um, What about subjects like learning languages or even other subjects completely like, I don't know, English or, you know, music? (laughs) Um, Do do you have any sort of suggestions for when we might be able to recognise types of content where interleaving is a helpful thing to do and maybe when it doesn't apply? I think that's a really good question. And when does interleaving apply? When does it not? And how far can we stretch what we're interested right. in is still an active question that's being empirically studied at the moment. Hmm. I think what I would say right now is going from these principles of knowing that interleaving is really good, both for memory purposes, as well as for discrimination, attention to future purposes. Thinking about if, if you're a teacher thinking about, you know, is interleaving going to be useful here? One, first identify what are the, the concepts that your students tend to struggle with. Identify what are the most confusing aspects and maybe prioritize the interleaving there. And so that one really draws on this attentional discrimination piece of interleaving. The example we've talked about so far is to do with maths, but interleaving has also been found to be very robust for um, text-based passage learning. So um, there was a study in which participants were shown little clinical case studies of different types of patients. And their job was to identify from these case descriptions what clinical disorder they had. So here we have something more text-based, whereas math might be something a little bit more perceptually based, procedurally based. We also know that interleaving works for things like learning how to recognize different painting styles by different artists. So something very, very visual. But also the, the interleaving research actually stems from a huge body of research on motor skills. So things like learning how to play different piano songs, learning how to tie different types of knots learning how to um, swing a baseball bat to different types of pitches. Interleaving has actually been shown to be very robust for a very wide range of skills. So if you're a teacher and, um, and you don't have that many confusable concepts, the other thing I would point to is that interleaving is also really good for memory purposes. We know that we want our students to be able to remember things for that end of year big exam, for the GCSEs, for the AP exams for your A-levels or your IB. So what you should do as a teacher is constantly bring things back because interleaving, even if you don't have confusable concepts, interleaving also inherently includes spacing. And we know that spacing is really good for long-term memory maintenance. There is a surprisingly large range for which interleaving or spacing, in a sense, can work. Got it. Got it. I think that sets up quite an interesting question about the difference between interleaving and spacing. I, I didn't want to get too deep into spacing, but since you've mentioned it, I think they are concepts that are almost used interchangeably sometimes. What do you see as the main differences between the two? Sometimes they are used interchangeably. I think more and more now researchers are starting to differentiate between them. But in fact, some of the earlier interleaving research really just used the word spacing instead of interleaving. 
So I think spacing is, I, I see interleaving as being a special subset of spacing. So spacing just says that when you come back to something, you're coming back to it at a later time as opposed to immediately. And it is pretty agnostic as to what goes in that in-between time. Spacing could be going to sleep, going about the rest of your day, having lunch, doing something else. Whereas interleaving is really about specifically juxtaposing different things. Hmm. So putting questions about different concepts next to each other and mixing those up. That's going to involve spacing, obviously, because now you have the questions from the same concept um, spaced out from each other. But then it's with this additional stipulation. And that's the way that I, I see the difference between interleaving and spacing. Yeah, yeah, got it, got it. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned a little earlier there's sort of a few of the kind of common themes I think between a lot of your examples were, as you were saying, where you've got kind of confusable concepts, things that could be easily easily mixed up. Those are particularly good candidates for for interleaving. Perhaps not. Would it be fair to say just mixing up? sort of any random topic, you know, doing a bit on volcanoes and then a bit on bark composition techniques or whatever, all within the same study session. I, I guess that's that's perhaps not what interleaving is saying. Well, first of all, I'd say that's still an area open empirical question. Fair enough. That's still something that we don't exactly know, but I would say it wouldn't maximize the benefits of interleaving. Got it. Great. As we sort of tie a bow on this part of the conversation, any parting tips you'd give to students about ways to use and not use interleaving effectively? Any any kind of additional do's or don'ts beyond what we've already talked about? Part of the thing that is challenging and daunting to a lot of students is we oftentimes think to ourselves, well, I, I can't possibly move on and introduce a whole bunch of other concepts until I feel like I have some base familiarity. And, and some research has shown that some amount of blocking initially can be good for initial learning to really kind of get that base familiarity. But the real advice I would give is you really ought to start interleaving way before you think you should. Yeah. Oftentimes you may even in your own study start interleaving immediately because you've already built up that base familiarity from taking the classes, from actually having your teacher teacher for reading in a textbook. When we sit down to study, we're not learning something for the first time brand new. Even if your teacher didn't interleave things, I think by the time you get to actually revision, that's when you really want to bring in interleaving for yourself. Absolutely. And that's a fantastic segue, actually, to, to the other big thing I wanted to ask you about today, which is what you've called in the past learning to struggle, or what other people call building in some desirable difficulty into, into your learning and, and the advantages of doing that. We've talked about a couple of examples of ways to make your learning a bit more difficult, a bit more challenging, and how that actually leads to better learning outcomes, even though it feels a bit more difficult in the moment. So if interleaving and spacing are a couple of examples, maybe you could just mention a, a couple of the other sort of examples that, that often come up. Yeah. So some other examples are generation. So trying to actually generate for yourself or to make predictions. So let's say you know that the next thing you're about to learn is about some phenomenon. The first thing you could try to do is to test yourself or try to generate, why could that phenomenon arise? Or if you are about to learn about some study and some results, uh, and you've just read about the method or what scientists did, you could try to actually make a prediction for yourself. Try to see if you can come up and generate the logic that would lead us to, you know, what could be the outcome. So really trying to draw on your own prior knowledge to elaborate, to generate, to predict, to pretest, essentially, 
is a really good way of making sure that you actually get more out of the learning when the answers are finally presented to you. And that can feel, again, kind of funny to do because you might yeah. ask yourself, why would I possibly try to come up with the answer when the thing I'm going to come up with would almost surely be the wrong answer? Why not just learn the correct answer only? And the reason why it's good to kind of generate and pretest yourself is that you're activating the semantic knowledge network that's related to what you're about to learn so that you can actually encode things in better. Things like variation as well, changing up the way in which you're studying something so you don't end up completely fixed with uh, one very rigid way of looking at a question. And variation can even stretch to the environment you're learning in as well, can't it? Absolutely. So we know that our learning or our memories are incredibly context dependent. And so when people say you should just find one place to study and one place to study only, that oftentimes is actually not great advice for long-term learning. I think it can be good advice in terms of finding somewhere that isn't distracting so you can actually focus. However, if you only learn something in one way or in one place, then it becomes very tied to that specific context. So that when you're in a different context, maybe you're in, you know, the exam hall where you have to take the exam or maybe, you know, out in real life, wherever it is that you need to retrieve the knowledge, your retrieval in those new situations is not going to be as well supported because you will not have attached that initial learning to the variety of cues that might actually be possible when you need that information. So you want to make sure that you're studying in multiple places if you can and just changing up that context so that information becomes more flexibly retrievable no matter where you are. Interesting. So mix up your environment as well as your, your study strategies. Cool. So it may seem a little bit counterintuitive at first to say, if you make your learning harder, it's better for you. Uh, you get better results. What's your kind of overall take on why learning to struggle or learning to incorporate some desirable difficulty is, is so important and, and so helpful when we're studying? So there's two types of struggle, right? There's struggle that's unproductive. There's struggle because this is really just so out of my reach that this is presented in such a confusing way that I can't even focus on what are the things I'm supposed to learn. So there's, there are truly difficulties out there that aren't helpful. Um, a really um, stupid example that I like to use is imagine you're trying to learn Latin while doing handstands and juggling balls with your feet. <laughs> um, but there's nothing about doing handstands and juggling balls with your feet that actually help you with learning Latin. So right, really right. About a very specific type of struggle. And it's a productive struggle in which you are a, focused appropriately on the core content that you're, you're trying to learn, and then that you're taking this core content and you're engaging with it in a more deep, elaborate way. However, the problem is, is that we have this general heuristic about, you know, difficulty is oftentimes related to things that are not helpful for learning. And then we overextend and generalize that heuristic to also then apply to the types of struggle that really are productive. So I think that's mm. part of the challenge as to why it's so hard to learn to struggle because it's really about struggling the appropriate way and separating out in our minds what is productive and what is unproductive struggle. Yeah, I see. So we're sometimes encouraged by teachers to find ways to learn in which it's supposed to be easier. And or there's this idea that the sort of rule of thumb that learning is supposed to be easy. And so it's uh, when we come across harder ways to learn, there's, there's some resistance to that. And as you say, not not every way of making learning harder is actually going to lead to lead to better outcomes. Um, and yeah, then it yeah. can be really tricky to know which are the ways that lead to better outcomes because there's this big difference between how you're currently performing and what you've actually learned. 
And there are many ways in which we can support our current performance by making it easy in the moment that actually short circuits and rob us of the opportunity to engage in the deeper elaborative processes that lead to better long-term learning. So things like cramming or rereading, it can make us feel like we're doing very well in the moment. That after crazy cram sesh, you feel like you've got lots of information right on the tip of your mind and that you can yeah. do well. And we oftentimes take how it feels at the end of our study session as the proxy for how it'll feel later. And what we oftentimes fail to account for is that how it feels now may be very different from, from how it feels later. I know here in America, a lot of teachers are focused on this idea of evidence using the data from the students. And I just want to caution both teachers, students, and parents that it really depends on what you consider the data that you're making your decision on. If you're basing it on the data that after I just blocked 100 questions of the exact same concept that I'm doing really, really well, that's really not good data. That's You've done well because in those 100 questions, you didn't have to think about the problem. You just had to plug and play. And so that would be an example of data that you might be basing your judgments on as to you know how someone is learning, but be a really poor, unreliable index of how they actually are learning. Yeah, I think it's a really good point uh, to bear in mind. You've sort of spoken to some of the challenges involved in starting to study with desirable difficulties or, you know, learning to struggle productively. As you were saying in your introduction, I know some of your kind of thinking in, in recent years has been, well, okay, how can we overcome these challenges? Uh, how can we draw on different disciplines and, and actually start to convince ourselves, students, that that we, we should be adopting some of these these strategies that we know to work based on the evidence from cognitive psychologists like yourself, but sometimes might not feel like they're working when we first start to use them. What do we know about the answers to that challenge? What are the ways forward? I think in part, a lot of the cognitive research so far has been so focused on words like productive failure, productive struggle, desirable difficulties. Um, I wonder if the next challenge is really a branding issue, because another Ah. thing about it is these are actually much more engaging, interesting ways of studying compared to cracking a book open and just reading from page one to page 100. I think maybe one thing we need to do is to reframe how we think about this difficulty slash struggle slash failure, that it's really not difficulty, failure, or struggle, that it actually is is something more enjoyably, productively challenging. I know when I'm talking to students about this stuff, I've got to come up with some phrasing of my own. I talk about the long way to study, which is things like rereading versus the smart way to study, which is things like self-testing. It's, it's way more efficient. You can get the same. So, so for any students who are listening, and if you already are getting A's and you feel like you're doing fine, think about how you can actually get that A in half the time and use the rest of your time for other much more fun things. Learn new things, actually, you know, it's, it's, we can focus and use all the time on what the core um, content of what we need to learn, or we can free a lot of that time up and go even further and find things that deepen our interest. Yeah, yeah. Other analogies I like to use is no one thinks about making it easy for video games or for exercise. Though there are clearly other domains in which we don't see just pure easiness as being a good sign. If you have just a very easy video game where you have no challenge at all to get through a level, that's just, that's called boring. I think a part of it is a rebranding challenge, but I think the other part of getting students kind of ready to use these types of strategies in their own learning is to normalize it. 
I think this is a place where teachers have a really play, can play a really big role in just normalizing what is the way in which we study in this class. And if the students go through different classes with different teachers where just the normative way is to pretest, is to generate, is to elaborate, is to retrieve, is to make connections, then I think the students are going to be more able to internalize that and use that in their own time when they're going about their own studying. And so part of it is also just making these practices the natural go-to rather than the type of practice where you have to gather up your willpower to do. Yeah, yeah. Because what's going on in that normalization, you're also sort of building confidence in how to use these sorts of techniques effectively. And you're also building that kind of sense that even though it may feel like a bit harder work in the moment, I know this works. I know this has a payoff and it might not be an immediate payoff in an hour's time. It might be a payoff in two or three weeks time when I kind of reach back and rather than having forgotten everything from those lessons, I'm like, actually, yeah, no, I remember stuff from, from those lessons. Um, and to your point earlier about when you kind of gather the data on whether this stuff works, I think sometimes you do need a few weeks to pass before you really feel the effect and, and the difference from, from some of this stuff. Yeah. And, and I guess the other thing I, I sometimes tell students is, well, when do you want to be making your mistakes? Let's say there is a misconception that you have. Yeah. Do you want to wait until the exam where it's high stakes to surface that? Or do you want to actually yeah. that earlier? Am I right in remembering that some of your uh, sort of earlier work, you started out by trying to uh, just, I suppose, tell students what worked or perhaps show them the statistics on what worked and just saying what works or just showing the stats on what works. That wasn't effective when it came to changing behaviour. Just trying to explain to people why isn't so kind of, I guess, kind of like what we're doing right now, explaining to people. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't really work very well because a lot of people said, well, I'm just in the minority of the students for whom it doesn't work because I know me. And, And I think that really points to how compelling our own illusions of our own learning can be, especially when we're not focused at the right at the right data point, when we're just focusing on, well, I know it works for me because it feels so much easier. I, I can answer questions immediately so well, but then people perhaps aren't focusing on what they actually are retaining longer term. The other challenge is that we never do A-B testing on ourselves. Uh, when we study a topic, we tend to study in one way. We don't say, well, I'm going to do half of this one way and half of this another way and then compare. And so anytime we, we do well or don't do well, we might just chalk it down to, well, this content was easier, or this content was harder this time, and not think about how it reflects on the way in which we practiced. That's, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So I suppose if we were to sort of wrap all this up, if you were giving a little pep talk, maybe to, uh, you know, maybe to one of your own students at university, you know, what, what might your kind of advice be based on all that we've talked about, uh, you know, how to actually get over the hump and start using more effective ways to learn in practice? So oftentimes I will ask my students, well, what are you currently doing? What are the ways in which you're currently studying? And a lot of students are trying to incorporate things like retrieval practice. So for example, almost every student I talk to has used some form of flashcards. Um, Oftentimes what's on those flashcards, however, on one side you have a concept, on the other side you have a definition. And Mm -hmm. so oftentimes people are trying to use things like retrieval practice. And then if they mix up the order of their flashcards, that would be them using interleaving. But oftentimes it's at a fairly shallow level, just staying at that surface level of what is the definition, which leads to fairly limited 
learning because you're not actually engaging the deeper elaboration, the application. So based on what they tell me, oftentimes I'll just give suggestions for augmenting what it is that they're already doing. So if you're using flashcards already, I would encourage them to say, make two random piles and take one card, like the top card from each pile, and then try to connect those two, make your walk your way through how those two concepts could be connected or related, or perhaps have a um, pile of scenarios and then a pile of concepts and draw two at random, put them together and say, well, how does this concept apply to this scenario? There are many ways in which we can actually make our learning more interesting and more engaging. So it's really thinking about, okay, what do I already do? How can I make this an even more engaging and efficient use of my time? I guess stick with it, even if it feels harder in the moment, you know, believe that those those payoffs are going to come. Yeah. No one is judging you except for you at this point. When you are doing your own study, the only person that sees your failures and that that might ever possibly judge you is yourself. And so that's that's a piece that we have to recognize. And then once we recognize that, we can maybe try to let that go. Nice. Awesome. Thank you for such a fantastic set of advice. I think there's been a huge amount to, to take away from all this, an enormous amount of wisdom and really clear how your sort of uh, advice kind of combines so much pragmatic stuff. It's not just about what you should be doing. You've also clearly thought a lot about how to actually do it in practice, which is absolutely fascinating. And I think we need a lot more of that in the world. So so thank you so much for, for sharing that today. So I, I know you were a pretty high performer yourself back at school. I just wanted to ask, a little bit about how you were studying back then to the extent you can remember. And perhaps if you could reach back through time and go back and give your high school self some advice, would you have her do anything differently? Absolutely. So I was doing a lot of the same things that all students do, really, things like uh, rereading, things like having my notes open while I copied over summaries and outlines. I think the one thing that really helped, ironically, was the fact that other people kept asking me to tutor them or parents would ask me to tutor their kids. Oh, no way. And so the very act of having to teach other people is, is ended up, I think, helping me much more so than it helped any of the people I was supposed to be teaching. So having to, to make those connections to reorganize information, I ended up retrieving a lot for myself. So I think one thing that I would I would tell my high school self is find more of those opportunities to teach other people. You're not necessarily helping those other yeah. people, you helping yourself. Well, I'm sure you were too. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is, I think I would be a lot, a lot, a lot more deliberate about interleaving because I did the, the thing where, you know, you just go one thing at a time, do it in order. And that, that really was not very helpful. I found that I couldn't do that in, in university. So in uni, um, the way in which the exam questions were written required me to synthesize and do a sort of grab. It was almost like a grab bag of all the different concepts that I learned throughout the year. And so by virtue of those exams being almost like, I guess, real life interleaved, it forced me to match my study strategies, my revision strategies to the, those exam questions. And that really helped. And yet there's also 
many ways in which I could have just engaged far more retrieval. And I'm sure I would remembered more of what I learned in, in A-levels and uni. There's a lot that I've yeah. forgotten in the time in between. No, that's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And if you're listening and relating to any of your description of how you used to study, then um, maybe taking uh, taking some notes on what, you, what your thoughts would be uh, with the benefit of so much hindsight now. Veronica, thank you so much. Where can people find a bit more about you and perhaps follow your, your work and your research? My Twitter account is at EdScientists. And I also have a university professional webpage, which is sites.edb.utexas.edu slash SLAM. The SLAM is uh, the name of my lab, which is Science of Learning and Metacognition. And so you can find my list of what I'm currently doing, the people that I'm working with, as well as my publications on that website. I think most of my papers are downloadable as PDF directly from my website. But if there's ever anything that you want to read and you can't find online, just feel free to email me. And this is general advice for any paper that you find online that you're interested in. I think you'll find that most researchers are very, very happy just to email you a copy. That's that's really nice. And and thank you so much. I'll include both the, the Twitter and your, your personal website in the show notes to make that nice and easy uh, for, for anyone that wants to reach out, get in touch and, and follow you. And um, Veronica, thank you so much once again. Thank you so much, William. This was so much fun. Thank you so much once again, Veronica. I have to say that's probably been one of my all-time favourite episodes of the show. I, I really, really love that conversation. If you enjoyed it anywhere near as much as me, please do consider telling your friends about the show. I think you'll be doing them a great favour and it's always good to have a few course mates owe you one. Uh, you never know how that favour might be repaid in the months and years to come. And finally, remember that if you want help putting any of what we've been talking about in learning science season or otherwise into practice in your own studies, most of what I do for a living is coaching students of all ages, all stages, in how to study smarter, not harder, and getting those effective learning strategies and effective study habits to work for you in practice. You can find out more about how to work with me one-on-one and perhaps read some of the success stories I've had from students like you in the past over on the website at examstudyexpert.com forward slash coaching. That's examstudyexpert.com forward slash coaching. For now, thanks ever so much for listening today. Remember to study smart and I will look forward to seeing you next time. If you've got exams coming up, You can now get all of William's favourite tips and tricks to save you time and get you higher grades all in one handy cheat sheet. Grab your copy at examstudyexpert.com slash free tips. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.